Turn in now in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in front of you. Um, say, I personally love that song, There is a Redeemer. This is actually a song written by Melody Green, I believe in 1977, popularized by her husband, Keith Green, who unfortunately was taken to us taken away from us at a young age in a plane crash, but it was in his, I think, 1982 album that he made this popular, and he wrote the last verse, Melody wrote the first, I believe it was four verses of that song. What a wonderful song it is, what a reminder it is that there is a Redeemer, and God the Father gave his son for us. Let us now spend a few moments in prayer, and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts and setting aside this time. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, as we sang earlier, how sweet it is to trust in you. When we are with you, we have nothing to fear. Your word is excellent and trustworthy. Guide us now as we study your word. Help us to lay aside all those things that can be distracting us, whether it be our job or plans for this afternoon or the next week, kids, whatever it may be. Help us to lay this aside now, to focus on what you have for us in this time, to commune with you. Lord Jesus, grant us grace in this time that we may leave trusting you more than we did when we came in through these doors this morning. And it's in your great name we pray. Amen. So hopefully now you've had an opportunity to turn to 1 Samuel. And today we're going to be reading the second half of chapter 20. We're going to be reading verses 24 through the end of the chapter, verse 42. 1 Samuel, chapter 20, starting with verse 24. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, and at, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, Something has happened to, to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was still empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has, has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan it holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to them, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, 
neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered his, Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul heard, hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food on the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to this boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called out after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said, Go and carry them to the city. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. They kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is the word of the Lord. So this week is in many ways part two of last week's sermon that Pastor Nick started. Last Sunday, Pastor Nick delivered a wonderful sermon on the brotherly bond that David and Jonathan had as friends. If you missed it, you'll unfortunately have to wait till Tuesday or Wednesday for Pastor Nick to get that sermon up on the website, as I know he did not have time before he went on vacation. However, I do recommend, if you ever miss a sermon, or if you ever want to listen again, to use our website as a, a resource to help you in your walk with the Lord. So last week, Pastor Nick preached on the first part of chapter 20, and he pointed out our need for a gospel friendship. He showed us the ways that Jonathan displayed qualities of a gospel friendship in his friendship with David. Jonathan committed his plans to the Lord. So he committed his friendship and his plans to the Lord. He trusted in the steadfast love of the Lord. He trusted in the victory of the Lord. And he appealed to the sovereign rule of the Lord. And that was from last week. So this week is the culmination to that story. So this is the, the finishing of the story. This is where the plan that was laid out between David and Jonathan in last week's passage is carried out. For Jonathan, for Jonathan, this is in many ways the conclusion to his story. After this, we hear very little from him. We see him briefly coming in to play again in chapter 23 as David is on the run. He comes to David in the wilderness. He encourages David. He comforts him in his time of need. He makes a covenant with David, and then he returns home. But that's only about three verses. You don't see a whole lot more. Then we see Jonathan one last time in chapter 31, where it simply states that the Philistines had slain both Jonathan and his two brothers in battle. 
Personally, I've always loved the story of Jonathan. I think he's a bit of an unsung hero and his narrative in 1 Samuel. He, I've always appreciated that Jonathan, he approaches life with such humility and simpleness. And he's so consistent in trusting in the Lord throughout every time you hear about him in the scripture. And this week's passage is no exception. So last week, David and Jonathan, they agreed upon a plan in our first part of chapter 20. And now David goes into hiding. That's his, his duty in this plan. His job is to go into hiding. He's a shepherd, and the, the field probably has lots of rocks in it. It's probably not hard for him to actually just hide in the field for a couple of days. Uh, he knows how to get around in fields. He spent his whole life growing up in the fields. And then we get into this dinner and this family drama. And this next part of the passage is something like off of a reality TV, which personally, I don't like the reality TV genre at all. I, I don't find anything good out of it. I can't stand to watch it. Everything's just very staged and fake, even though it's reality. Um, besides, I got plenty of drama in my own life. Why do I need to get wrapped up in somebody else's drama, right? However, I think this interaction at the dinner with Saul and Jonathan would have made for quite the hit on reality TV. If you think about it, imagine with me for a moment if you had this scene in a modern day setting. So you come in and it's a mansion, the, the TV screen, the cameras, they sh open up with a shot of Saul's big mansion and there's a big dinner table and it comes in and you've got Saul sitting at the table and then next to him he's got Abner and Abner he's the commander of the army right so he's in modern day setting he's probably dressed up in all black tactical gear looking like he's something special uh, ready to fight um, then next to Saul on the other side is David's seat and it's empty and then across you have the heir to the state the heir to everything that Saul has sitting across from Saul on the other side and as they're sitting down, they're having this dinner, and it's served by the servants coming out, and they serve the meal. Saul just opens the dinner with some small talk, seemingly very nonchalantly saying, hey, where's that kid from down the street? Why didn't he join us for dinner today? Now, Saul knows who David is. He knows David by name, right? He's married to McCall, Saul's daughter. He's done all these great feats but he's wrapped up with jealousy. Wrapped up with jealousy and to the point it's full of sin, and he can't even state that David's name by name. He calls him the son of Jesse. I think also it's a jab to Jonathan because Saul knows that Jonathan and David are good friends. And so the camera crew, back to our hypothetical scenario, the camera crew would recognize that this is kind of a jab, so it would zoom in on Jonathan, waiting for him to react to this jab. But Jonathan instead calmly responds, yeah, David, he had a big family thing going on, and I know he couldn't ask, absolutely couldn't miss it, so he asked me if it was okay, and I could see how much it meant to him, so I told him he could go. Jonathan is very intentional here in calling David by name. It wasn't an accident. He very intentionally reminds Saul that the boy you're talking about is David. in this message and Jonathan's response, it's clear that Jonathan has, if you look at the Hebrew, has some very clear things where he earnestly asked me, he, he asked, it can also be interpreted as he, he asked to escape. 
And so Jonathan has kind of got this veiled message that's got a lot of truth in it. He asked me to escape. He also asked me, and he says, I need to go so urgently. So he asked hurriedly. So there is a veiled message when you read the Hebrew that Jonathan was actually in many ways telling the truth. It wasn't all false. And, but he's very intentional. Now, suddenly, Saul slams his fist on the table. And the show cuts then, of course, because it's a TV show, right? Cuts to five minutes of commercial. And then it spends the next 15 minutes recapping that first three minutes, right? Because it's reality TV. And that's how they do it. So finally, we get back to the dinner table. As the cameras jump back up, now to a close-up of Saul, right? And he's lost his temper. And he starts screaming insults and four-letter words. And then it's just a series of beeping because they can't play it on TV. And they have to block out Saul's words to Jonathan. However, he ends this tirade with, Jonathan, don't you realize that the kid from down the street is trying to take all of your inheritance of this house, everything you deserve? Bring him back here so I can kill that rat, right? We should note that in verse 30, as we read it again, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to them, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, I do not know that you have chosen, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? So it's important to note here in this Hebrew and reading a lot of commentators, they really can't translate this well because it's almost a little bit of slang. But what is very clear is that Saul is not insulting Jonathan's mother, but Jonathan directly, right? And so for us, it would be four letter words. He's saying some very mean things to Jonathan. He is attacking Jonathan directly. And in verse 31, we see once again that Saul is refusing to acknowledge David by name. The son of Jesse, he calls him again. In Saul's anger, he claims that his concern, though, rests with Jonathan. He's saying, hey, I'm angry for you. I am angry because of David is going to take your inheritance. That's why I'm upset. And he appeals to Jonathan's fleshly desires, because he's saying, hey, if David's still alive, you are not going to get the inheritance that you deserve. You deserve this. This is yours. You should get that next inheritance. Jonathan, though, remains calm in all this. He has no hope of being next king. It's not his desire. It's a reality that he seems to have already come to terms with, recognizing, as we saw previously, that he recognizes that David is to be the next king. And he's okay with that, as he trusts in the Lord and the Lord's sovereignty. Though Saul tries to get Jonathan to side with him, appealing to Jonathan, but Jonathan is resolute and set to follow the Lord no matter the cost. Finally, notice in verse 31, it ends with Saul stating, Therefore, send him to me, for he shall surely die. This is a, a huge shift here with Saul. Up to this point in 1 Samuel, as he's hunting David, he is trying to get David killed indirectly. He's not directly saying, I want him dead. He's doing it indirectly. He sends for Philistine foreskins to get the wife of McCall, or to get the hand of McCall in marriage, right? He does that with the idea in the back of his mind that I do this and he's going to get overrun. The Philistines will kill him. My problems are over. And over and over, he is indirectly using people to try to get at David. Here, we see a shift. He has shifted now to directly attacking David and saying, I will do it myself. 
so back to our imaginary, well, so yeah, back to our imaginary reality TV set. So the cameras are set so now that you can see both Saul and Jonathan from the side, a side angle, right? And as Saul's finishing his tirades and insults to, to Jonathan, the camera would begin to zoom in on Jonathan and focus on Jonathan, waiting for him to respond and get angry as well. Jonathan, though, at this point, he's visibly shaken by all that his dad has just said to him, but he doesn't lose his temper. He remains calm. Nearly in tears, though, Jonathan says, why do you want to do that? What, what has he ever done to you? Then, out of nowhere, we see a pair of steak knives whiz by Jonathan's head, narrowly missing him. And since the camera is focused on Jonathan, we don't see where it comes from. And then, of course, being good reality TV, we go to five minutes more of commercials, 15 minutes more of recap, before we get back to the main story, and they show us a different ca camera angle than at that point, right? And finally, we can see that, one can see that where the knives came from. They came from Saul grabbing the steak knives, his as well as Abner's, and hurling them at Jonathan. In reality, Saul doesn't throw steak knives at Jonathan, but instead, in verse 33, you see he threw a spear at Jonathan. Does this sound familiar to anybody who's listened to the previous sermons? It's happened on two other occasions. If you remember in chapter 18, we saw King Saul throw not one, but two spears at David. And then again in chapter 19, while David again was playing the lyre, trying to calm Saul's spirit, trying to calm him down, we see David getting another spear thrown at him from King Saul. This time, he hurls the spear at his son, Jonathan. There's a lot of meaning behind this in that he is saying, I am treating you now like I treat David. I am out after you. Um, if I was a, serving in the king's court, I don't think I would let Saul have a weapon near him because I'd be afraid he might turn it on me. But do you see the irony here, though, in verse 31? We see Saul claiming in verse 31 that he is concerned that as long as David is alive, Jonathan is not going to get his rightful inheritance. And then just a couple of verses later, we see him trying to kill his son. It's because that's not really what Saul is focused about. He's worried about himself, and he is consumed with jealousy. Sin had taken a stranglehold on Saul's life so he couldn't even think straight and understand what he was doing. So then, after this family drama, we see that Jonathan storms out, and he's hurt. He's hurt not because of what was said to him. He's hurt because of David. He is grieved for David, for his father had disgraced him. So the plan that they laid forth, Jonathan continues to carry out this plan. He has carried out the first part with the dinner at the first two festivals, the new moon festivals. And now, the next morning, he continues to carry it out. He keeps the rest of his promise to David and goes out to the field. Where David is hiding to give him his secret message through his comments to a servant boy in a short archery practice. Now keep in mind, Jonathan is a very skilled archer, so he's not going to miss a target. However, here he, he kind of does, right? So at the end of verse 37, Jonathan states to his servant boy, is not the arrow beyond you? After he shoots the arrow out into the field, 
This is agreed upon cue for David that Saul is indeed out to murder him. So if we remember back last week, back up to the chapter, uh, verses 21 and 22, Jonathan says to David after they were making their plan, And behold, I will send out the boy saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on the side of you. Take them. Then you are to come to me, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. So following through with his plan, with David and the promise that he made, Jonathan states to the servant boy, are not the arrows beyond you? Notice, though, in verse 38, Jonathan adds to this message, hurry, be quick, do not stay. Here he is communicating to David the urgency at which David needs to flee for his life. It's not something to take lightly. Many commentators believe that this servant boy would have been roughly 10 years old or maybe even younger, right? Because he would be old enough that Jonathan taking the boy out for an archery practice to chase after his arrows would not have drawn any attention to him, but yet young enough that the boy would not have asked questions about what likely to appear to be a rather confusing message. If you put yourself in the servant boys, I, I'm near the arrows and he's saying they're beyond me. Now he's telling me to hurry and be quick and do not waste time. I, I don't understand what's going on here. But the boy would have been young enough, he would not have asked those questions. So after the boy leave, leaves, David apparently determines it's safe enough for him to come out of hiding so he can properly say goodbye to his dear friend. Then David starts by acknowledging and bowing before Jonathan, a clear sign of respect towards the crown prince, acknowledging that he is still in allegiance to Jonathan, and he respects that Jonathan is still heir to the throne, even though he has been anointed by Samuel. Then we read the end of verse 31, and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. For many of us, we probably do not think much of this statement. However, for some in our culture today, they like to take this as evidence that David and Jonathan's relationship was more than just a deep brotherly friendship, that it had more of a romantic side to it. So I want to take just a couple moments and address that topic in case you ever encounter someone with this point of view. So when reading all of Scripture, not just this, all of Scripture, we must consider the culture of the time, as well as the context within which it is written. In our American culture today, any form of contact beyond a simple handshake is seen as, don't, even handshakes anymore seem to be like, don't, don't touch me. Um, but there are many cultures in which a kiss on both cheeks is the norm when greeting each other is as a hello or a goodbye. I initially think of like Italians who greet each other uh, Greek friends and acquaintances with kisses on a cheek. However, there's many cultures in Europe and throughout Latin America where this is a common practice as well. And some places it's right-left, other times it's right-left-right, depending on the culture that you're in. Looking at other passages in the Old Testament, we see that kissing as a greeting is likely a part that is common in the culture that David and Jonathan are a part of. Uh, second, we need to consider the context here. So, Jonathan just had an attempt on his life by his father, and he just had confirmation 
the, the night before, that he is also coming to terms that his father really hates his best friend, that he's dearly friends with, so much so that he wants to murder his best friend as well. David, on the other hand, just learned for certain that the king wants him dead. He is about to go on the run as the king's most wanted man. He is leaving everything behind, including his best friend Jonathan, doesn't know what's in store for him next, doesn't have anything to take with him. Within the context, you can see that both men are extremely distraught and likely believe that this may be the last time that they will see each other ever again. Therefore, I say it's very reasonable to conclude that this is a kiss of greeting or goodbye and not a romantic one. I know that there's more that can be said on this topic and you can flush out the Hebrew in it all, but I'm going to leave it there for now if you want to discuss this further. I'm more than welcome uh, to discuss it after the service or later uh, throughout the week in more detail. So what can we take away from this passage aside from, well, I guess my family's not quite as messed up as I thought. I mean, we're not literally trying to kill one another. What can we take away from this passage today? I would say that we can look to Jonathan and the ways he handles himself in this passage as a model for discipleship for us. Both in the ways that he handles himself before his father, the king, a close family member, and in how he handles himself with his best friend, David. So first, let's look at the way that Jonathan models discipleship towards his dad. So, despite Saul's very despicable attitude towards David, Jonathan remains humble and respectful to his dad. In verses 30 and 31, Saul insults Jonathan, as we saw, and he threatens him. And in verse 33, we see Jonathan's response. He doesn't respond with anger or hurt or respond with further insults, but instead he stays on topic, he stays calm. And he says, what has David done to deserve this treatment? Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and they responded with an offensive statement towards you? If so, how did you respond? thinking about this myself this week and I can remember a couple occasions where I was I was sharing the good news of Christ and they responded with a rather offensive and hurtful statement aimed at me I'll tell you right now I didn't respond with a nice theological response I was taken aback I was just kind of caught off guard Jonathan is consistent in his response and this is the second thing we see. Jonathan is very consistent in his approach with his father. This is not the first time Jonathan has tried to talk common sense into his father with regards to David. For instance, we saw it at the beginning of chapter 19. We go back to the beginning of 19. That Jonathan, he speaks well of David. And asks Saul to consider what David has done against Saul for Saul to, be, to have such a negative disposition towards him. The answer to that question is Nothing. And Saul knows it. Jonathan's response in chapter 20, verse 32, closely mirrors what he said at the beginning of 19. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan is very consistent in the way he talks with his father. So how about you? Are you consistent with your testimony? Are you consistent not only with your words, but with your actions? Are you consistently a gospel light to others? For me, this can be rather convicting at times. 
I know at my day job, I'm under a lot of pressure many days, under pressure from a lot of people in a lot of different groups and different departments from different angles and about the time you get spun around for one thing, the next problem pops up from a totally different project and on you're going. And I often think of myself as a sponge that's getting squeezed. And I ask myself continually, as I'm getting squeezed, is what's coming out, is it clean and pure water, or is it the muck filled with stuff of this world? Many mornings on my short drive to work, my prayer is simply, Lord, help me to be a light to those around me. Even as things don't go according to plan, help me to be a light for you. Unfortunately, I don't do this perfectly. I'm human, I make mistakes, and I have to ask for forgiveness. Jonathan is very consistent with his father. He's very consistent in dealing with him. We too are called to be consistent. Finally, we see that in dealing with his father, Jonathan is willing to accept the consequences of discipling to his father. He's willing to accept what the results may be. As Pastor Nick stated last week, Jonathan committed his plans to the Lord. He trusted in the steadfast love of the Lord. He trusted in the victory of the Lord, and he appealed to the sovereign rule of God. In all of this, Jonathan shows that he has come to terms with the that following the Lord's lead has consequences. Unlike his father, he does not seem to be upset by the fact that David will be the next king, even though technically he is the crown prince. He does not seem to be bothered by this. Jonathan also seems willing to accept the relational divide that comes between him and his father as a result of him following the Lord's plan. This is much like what Jesus said in Luke Chapter 14, verses 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's a cost to following the Lord's plan. For each person, that cost is going to look a little different. Matthew 10, 22, chapter 10, verse 22, Jesus states again, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. We are called to endure. Are you willing to accept the cost of following the Lord's plan? Are you willing to accept that sharing the gospel with an unbelieving friend or family member might make things uncomfortable for a time? I've Remember in this, Pastor Rick, previous to Pastor Nick, used to talk about sharing his faith with a family member who was not saved and how every so often he would share that faith and then that particular family member would avoid him for weeks, sometimes months on end, and then they would gather a relationship back and then after a time he would share again and then they would be separated for a time his particular family member would avoid him. Are you prepared to do that? There's an eternity at stake here. We also see in this passage that Jonathan models discipleship towards David, not just towards Saul. First, Jonathan follows through with his plan. Jonathan made a promise to David, and we see in this passage that he keeps his promise to David, and he follows through. Think of the parable that Jesus spoke of the two boys and the father And the first one says, yes, I will go, and then he does not. The first one says, no, and he does. The one that does the will of the Father is the one that he did not, right? 
Jonathan kept his word. He said, yes, I will go, and he did, and he did it, even though it cost him. He made a promise to David, and he kept every bit of that promise, even though it resulted in a spear being thrown at him. I can imagine that Jonathan even had a sense of danger that next morning as he's going out into this field, right? Because now Saul has associated Jonathan and David together as one, and so who knows if Jonathan has spies sitting, waiting, and wait for him, hoping that Jonathan will lead uh, them to David. And after seeing how dangerous this night was, Jonathan had to be concerned. And if this were the case, what would happen to Jonathan if he were caught with David? If this was a concern of Jonathan's, he doesn't let it show it. He puts his friend's need first, and he keeps his promise. Are we willing to be a gospel friend to those in their time of need? Or do we simply say something when somebody's sharing something, ah, yeah, that must be difficult, I'll pray for you, and then we go about our ways. For me, this phrase, I'll pray for you, is one that honestly, it bothers me because in our culture we use that all too flippantly and we don't actually, in many cases, mean it. And so I'm very cautious if I use that phrase to be very intentional to follow through and actually pray for that person. Generally, I try to do so right then, and then I try to write it down. Very cautious in using that phrase. I will pray for you. There is power in prayer. Here we see that Jonathan is following through for David. Next, with respect to David, Jonathan does what he knows is right and God-honoring, even though it was not easy. Back to what Jesus said in Luke 14. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. Jonathan's actions show that he loved David sacrificially and that through his sacrificial actions, he is able to remind David that the Lord is sovereign and in control. Finally, Jonathan disciples David by pointing him back to the Lord. Notice at the end of today's passage what Jonathan says to David at the beginning of verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. We have have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying that the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Are we consistently pointing our friends back to the Lord? In this time of grief and separation of Jonathan and David, he points them back to the Lord and he says, the Lord is with us. The Lord is in control. Are we sharing scripture with our friends when they're in times of need? Are we pointing them back to what Jesus has done on the cross? Through all of this, we see that Jonathan is willing to give up everything he has for David. Are you willing to do the same for Jesus? Let us close now in prayer. Lord Jesus, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we give thanks for your word and the many ways that it teaches us. Lord, we thank you for examples like Jonathan who show us what sacrificial love looks like, who display humility and consistency in their lives. Lord, may we take this example that you have laid before us and may we learn from that and apply it to our lives. Lord, draw us ever nearer to you, and it's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen.